Welcome to the 2023 World PICU Awareness Week podcast on sepsis. Created by the European Society of Pediatric Neonatal Intensive Care and promoted by the World Federation of Pediatric and Critical Care Societies. Each episode will host a short interview with key European opinion leaders on preventing and managing pediatric sepsis in PICU and NICU. Hello, my name is Joseph Manning and I am a clinical associate professor and charge nurse for paediatric critical care outreach at Nottingham Children's Hospital. I also work as an associate professor and deputy director of the Centre for Children and Young People's Health Research at the University of Nottingham. And I will be your host for this episode. During today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Gillian Colville, who is a consultant clinical psychologist and also a research fellow at St. George's Hospital in London in the UK. And we're going to be talking about the follow-up of children that have become critically ill due to sepsis. So Gillian, the first question we've got for you is, is using your extensive clinical and research insights, can you just briefly talk to us about what the needs are of these children and families who have survived uh, sepsis and septic illnesses? Uh, yes, I'd, I'd be happy to, um, Joseph. Thank you. I think that the probably the biggest thing is actually taking in what's happened. And I think thinking about sepsis in particular, often the course of sepsis is very, very quick. I've met a few families now where the child had a relatively normal illness, like something like chickenpox, where the family thought they were handling it okay, and then suddenly everything deteriorated very, very rapidly. And I think there isn't a lot of time to take in quite what's happening and quite the speed it's happening, so that people are quite shell-shocked when they come out of ICU and realise just how serious that uh, admission was. Um, that, of course, applies in other situations in critical care as well. But I think there is there's something about the, the speed at which sepsis can kick in. And if and people don't know much about it, so it, there's a lot of fear when they realise just how sick the child is. Uh, so I think one of the things is having time to make sense of what happened. And that also entails it coming up with a, some sort of story or form of words, really, within the family to explain to the child as well, who may have missed quite a lot of what was happening on ICU. Because the one thing you learn working on ICU is that although the parents and the child are there at the same time, their experiences can be very different. So the child may literally remember nothing of being on PICU and be a bit mystified as to why its parents seem so on edge, you know, when when the child does finally wake up. And are there any specific needs that the parents may have in in processing or coming to terms with the event that they've, they've, they've observed? I think one thing that strikes me is sometimes because sepsis can set in after a relatively ordinary thing like chickenpox or even an infected cut after a road accident, that that sort of thing. Sometimes parents are feeling guilty that they didn't realise sooner how ill the child was, or conversely, they might be angry with 
primary carers for not realising or or people in accident and emergency maybe not appreciating just how sick the child was um, and how quickly they were deteriorating. Another thing that can happen in sepsis, sadly, is a degree of disfigurement. So depending on which part of the body is affected, it is possible that a child might lose a limb or suffer a disfigurement in the area of the where the infection has really taken hold. And that's a whole other aspect that has to be grappled with in the aftermath of an admission. So it sounds like they've got there's quite sort of complex and, and diverse needs that some of these families may have following their critical care admission for having a child or an infant or a young person with sepsis. What sort of things can we do to support and follow up these families? Well, I think, as we know from some of the research you've been doing recently in the UK, the extent to which people are formally followed up is pretty limited internationally, although the Dutch probably have the most advanced system of follow-up. So at the moment, we're really in answering that question, I can only talk about how can health professionals sort of on the ground support families through this difficult situation. But I think ideally, it would be good if we were following people up at regular intervals and checking on their understanding of what actually happened. I mean, I think in the immediate period when the child's critically ill, it's important that parents have clear information and know who they can ask further questions of. Um, But they are reeling and some of them will want to talk more than others. I think also it's important to recognise that in most cases, families manage this, they adapt, we're built to adapt, and most people cope with difficult situations like this. The child and parents' experience may be very different, as I alluded to earlier. The child may be very frightened of a blood test on the ward afterwards, not realising how desperately sick they were on intensive care, and sometimes that's a surprise to parents. But I think the main thing is that people need time, they need to give themselves time, and that's something that health professionals on the ground can talk to them about. They need time to adjust to what's happened and to recover as a whole family and find a way to talk about what happened and move on from it. Yeah, I think I think that's real, really important advice. And I think some of the, the challenge that we have is that we're always oftentimes limited for the for the time and, and opportunities to have those conversations and offer those, that support for the for the individuals or the families or parents at the time that they want it. So is there any other sort of strategies or approaches that you've used in your clinical practice that has been useful for families to enable them to help themselves and help help each other at times that's relevant to them? I think one useful angle is to, if it's possible and, and time allows, to find out how they normally cope when things are difficult And if you ask a question like that at the bedside, you sometimes get a very different answer from the mum and the dad. And I mean, I I think experience tells us that people tend to fall into their usual habits. If you're somebody who 
always looks on the bright side you'll be doing that in this situation and you know clinging to anything positive that's said but sometimes in the same couple you can have one member of the couple literally planning the funeral and considering the worst that could happen because that's how they're built and how they cope and I think you can support people in coping the way they're built to cope they're not suddenly going to take on a new strategy that they're more likely to fall back on the ways they normally cope but for example people who usually make lists um, you can provide them with notebooks and encourage them to make lists of questions to ask of the medical staff at the next ward round and uh, that sort of thing and other people who maybe normally exercise you know we have parents sort of encouraged to walk around the block and get get fresh air and get out of the unit if they're really struggling to be on the unit the, the other things i think that apply more widely than just sepsis is families may find it helpful to be aware of the possibility that the child might have delirium that's quite scary to witness in a child when you're desperately waking you're waiting for them to wake up and then to if they seem to be behaving very oddly or seeing things that aren't there or don't seem to recognize you that can be pretty devastating if you've been waiting by the bedside for days so i think good quality information about the possibility of delirium is another aspect of um, bedside support and in relation, so that's in the shorter term, but in the longer term, obviously the we've got evidence in, in the, the literature that identifies that there are emerging um, issues that may manifest six to 12 months post-intensive care, emotional, behavioural problems, post-traumatic stress symptomology. How could we support or how should we support these families um, with newly emerging issues in the longer term? I think this is, you know, a really important question. And I think going back specifically to sepsis, there's some information or, or some speculation about inflammatory markers uh, being associated with particular cognitive difficulties. And we, we've yet to get to the bottom of this, but certainly the team at St. Mary's in uh, London in UK have done some work on this. And there's recently been some work in paediatric critical care medicine about the particular needs of neurological follow-up and neurocognitive follow-up with children after um, intensive care admission. So I think that's one area that we we can't give families clear information on and we need to be gathering more information through research. But I think I think if we can move to a position where we are regularly checking on families at set intervals, we'll have more of a sense of um, screeners to use at different points to to check on cognitive as well as emotional and behavioural issues that may emerge once the child is definitely out of the woods from a, a survival point of view. It's trying to strike a balance really between being aware of the possibility of pathology and not over overstating that and, and also being mindful that in most families people find a way through these difficult situations. But I think until we are dealing with families in a more systematic way, 
we're really limited to what we can say during the admission. I mean, that's the that's the reality. Maybe another point could be whether it might be possible to flag up possible issues with primary carers. That's something that um, certainly Debbie Long is looking at in the DAISY study in Australia, trying to co- collaborate more with primary carers and be on the lookout for any signs of cognitive or, or other emotional behavioural issues, in, especially in the first year after admission. But I think this is all of this is kind of in its infancy, but um, I'm sure that's really going to be the next big growth area in this field. Yeah, and I suppose it's about looking at the, the wider system and thinking not beyond healthcare for these children and their lives and their outcome transcend beyond the health state. And I think, again, um, from Australia and Lauren Slapback has um, done some really interesting work looking at educational attainment for children that have um, survived sepsis. Um, yeah. And that's significantly lower than their matched controls. Um, yes. And so yes. I think so I think that there is a whole field of research that needs to be undertaken to truly understand the complexities of, of the impact that sepsis has on, on these children and their lives in the in the longer term and how we can mobilise the wider system of, of professionals, not just within health, but also in social care and third sector and education to help optimise and support um, these children and families to have fulfilling, meaningful lives beyond their their critical illness due to sepsis. Yes, and to get the extra support that they need um, early on to help them catch up or, or pick up on, make up for any skills that may ha- they may have lost. Um, and there is exciting work going on. Mary Hartman and her team have written a little bit lately about more systematic neuropsych assessments for children with mild brain injury. And they're another group that statistically are at risk of poorer outcomes educationally. And yet another group are the children going through ECMO. And Kate Brown and her team at Great Ormond Street have written on several papers now on what they've learned through providing more regular follow-up. And again and again, it's emotional, behavioural and cognitive outcomes that parents are raising that they feel are directly related to experiences on ICU, but aren't getting picked up in the community in the way that they would hope. But all of this has quite a lot of implications for PICU staff who traditionally just focus on the admission you know so there's there's the need for what's known in the trade as a paradigm shift about thinking about the care of the child beyond the critical care unit and even if the PICU extended team doesn't have the resources to provide all the support that a family need i think morally we're at a point now where we are feeling under more obligation to communicate with primary carers, primary health carers, and through them to educational settings about the potential risks that these children face. And that's really part of our job in seeing the child 
back, back into optimal health, really. Well, thank you so much, Gillian, for sharing your extensive expertise, clinical insights and, and knowledge with us today during this uh, podcast. It's been really useful to have a specific focus and put under the spotlight the follow-up of the septic child. So thank you so much. And that's the end of our podcast. Thank you.